As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. We're continuing to face unprecedented times. And as parents, we have an added responsibility of decision-making for our children. We may be working from home, but should they homeschool or go back for live sessions or do a hybrid of virtual and in-person? Who knows? Today, I'm joined by my children's beloved pediatrician, Dr. Melissa Garofalo-Monaco of Forest Pediatrics in Paramus, New Jersey. And she has been with us since the kids were born. I still remember vividly when I brought my two swaddled twins (laughs) to you, Christian Sohana, for their uh, first appointment. And then 18 months later, Shrey came along. You know, we were just rocking and rolling. So it's just, it's great to, to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I, I do brag to everyone that we have the most amazing patients. So I'm always happy to be a part of everything you guys do. Oh, most so of my interviews are from the patients for their school mm-hmm. projects. So I'm really excited to get interviewed by an adult too. Yes, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I want to just uh, start with your bio. So originally from Saddlebrook, New Jersey, Dr. Garofalo had been practicing pediatrics in New Jersey since 2008. She started as a graduate of the Academy for the Advancement of Science and Technology in Hackensack, New Jersey. She then graduated with high honors from the combined BSMD program through Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, and the New Jersey Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. She completed her pediatric training at Schneider Children's Hospital at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New Hyde Park, New York, and also served as chief resident of pediatrics. Her interests include promoting breastfeeding and obesity prevention. She is board certified in pediatrics and is a member of the NJAAP section on breastfeeding and has been a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics since 2007. Her hospital affiliations include Hackensack University Medical Center and Valley Hospital. She has been the recipient of the Castle Connolly Top Doctor Award and New Jersey Kids Favorite Doc. Very well deserved. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um, Force Pediatrics and how you decided to you know, launch your own practice. So it was about 11 years ago. Uh, Dr. Kushner, my partner, was actually my pediatrician. We both were working together my first job after my training. I had my daughter. She's 12 now. And we're in an environment where we really felt like we couldn't grow the kind of way we wanted to. I think one of my old bosses even asked me why I wanted to work outside the home because, you know, I had kids. So we had this crazy idea that we were going to start our own practice. So we've been in business now for 11 years. Uh, We love it. We're really kind of like your old school, small, independently owned practice. 
I like it a lot because I don't work for a hospital. I don't work for a company. I work for my patients. So it always makes me happy to see them. Yes. Yes. It's, and you really get that welcoming feel when you, when you walk in, I feel like it's just, it's so nice to have a relationship with um, both you and Dr. Kushner and, and the nurses, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they just really are the sweetest and they know you well and they know your kids and it's, it, it means a lot for parents. And it means a lot to us too, because we feel like we can actually really help our patients because, you know, most of our patients are not in and out in five to seven minutes. And if there's a problem with your kid, we're going to take care of it for you. Exactly. We'll do the best we can to help you out. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. And you give us that um, attention and that time. It's so valuable, especially for first-time moms. <laughs> so let's get into today's topic, which is back to school. And how does COVID-19 affect children and adults? And mm-hmm. you know what do we need to know about it? And what do you what have you found through your research? I had the good and bad fortune to take care of a bunch of children that were affected with COVID nineteen, especially in March and April. We're in Bergen County, New Jersey, which was really hard hit, and we also have the privilege of taking care of a lot of doctors, nurses, and first responders' children. I do have to say, all of my patients that were sick did wonderfully. They recovered very easily from their symptoms, even though a few had some complications. So COVID-19 and coronaviruses, they honestly look like any virus known to man in children. So they've seen symptoms like conjunctivitis, which is pink eye, sore throats, runny nose and cough, fevers, and really weird rashes. I've seen mostly like hives or all sorts of different types of pink splotches on the skin which we do see really commonly with any type of virus. Some of the kids do have some diarrhea. Any symptom your child might have of a virus, we've seen. Luckily, most of my experience in small children, and when I talk about children, I'm going to differentiate with my experience with kids under 10 and my experience with teenagers and young adults, because it looks a little bit different. Most of my experience with young children, children under 10, is that their poor, poor parents are super sick and they have a fever and they're jumping up and down on the couch. Most of them have done well. Two of my teenagers and young adults did get quite sick with respiratory symptoms, but did not have to be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Um, But some had some like heart palpitations. So I did have to have them evaluated by cardiologists. The thing about COVID is there are some kind of like rare side effects that we are seeing in children. There's a syndrome called MIS-C, a multicystic inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID. I have to stress it is extremely rare, but the kids can be quite ill. It does resemble a disease that we are familiar with called Kawasaki syndrome, and the treatment is actually the same. So a few of the kids have passed away from that. I think in the U.S. so far, we've had about 103 deaths in the pediatric population under 18. Some of the kids have passed away from COVID itself. Others have passed away from complications of MISC. Mm-hmm. MISC is particularly dangerous because it attacks your heart and it causes them to drop their blood pressure. They're really sick with like high fevers. A lot of times they will have diarrhea and a rash. And this isn't something that as a parent, it's not going to sneak up on you and you, you'll miss it. Your child is like very, very ill. Um, They're not like hopping around and jumping up and down on the couch. 
they are sick and most of them are brought to medical attention. It is something as pediatricians we have, we were recognizing as an illness because of our familiarity with the disease Kawasaki syndrome, which looks a little bit similar, but it's not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Most of these children were successfully treated. I'm affiliated with Hackensack Hospital in Hackensack. They had over 20 cases of MISC, and I don't think they had any fatalities, which was great. The heart function, which was damaged initially, from what they've seen in the short term, most had a lot of recovery. So it may not be back to normal, but there was a lot of improvement in function and the kids are able to go home. Okay. So it's good stuff. Yeah. So while most of it looks like a mild viral illness, it's still not incredi- not completely harmless. The other population I particularly worry about in children where we've had the kids get a lot more ill are children with diabetes children that are obese and that do have like comorbidities of obesity. So I have a few patients with that, that I've been keeping an eye on. Um, And some of the teenagers that have had more severe cases or that have had fatalities, sometimes they say they're perfectly healthy, but these are comorbidities or things, underlying medical conditions that they do have. A few perfectly healthy children have passed from this. But these are the two things that we have seen where the kids can be quite ill. Right. If you contact a board-certified pediatrician, it's a disease that we do know to recognize because it does resemble Kawasaki syndrome. Okay. And how do you test for that? Just curious. The testing is actually similar. There's a bunch of different inflammatory markers or markers in blood work Mm -hmm. that will be elevated with both. The big difference is that a lot of the kids with MISC have positive antibodies to COVID-19 or a high um, likelihood of exposure. Also, the findings on echocardiogram or like pictures of the heart are actually different from MISC and Kawasaki syndrome. Both of them do involve heart abnormalities, but what you actually see is different. Okay, got it. What about with COVID? You mentioned how, you know, it might just be a high fever, but they can still be bouncing off the walls. So how do you know that your child is COVID positive and it's not just your typical common cold or or viral infection? The teenagers and the older patients I have, I see kids up to 23. They will sometimes develop the classic loss of taste and smell, or they'll develop more of like like a cough and like a respiratory syndrome. Mm-hmm. Where the younger kids, even if they do lose their taste and smell, we really don't know because it's not always the most reliable thing for them to tell us. So testing honestly has been an issue. And even in my own office, there are places I could send my patients for testing. But say I in August, they came out with a fairly reliable rapid test that I wanted to buy. I put in my order for it second week in August. I got the tests in last week, but I still don't have the machine to run the tests. So everything is kind of like backed up and confused. So that's where there is a lot of, there is still a lot of work to be done because even the testing criteria is not really a hundred percent just yet. Exactly. Okay. Would you say that kids, because they may be more asymptomatic, they're the carriers? It's possible. Actually in March, We were looking around and we're like, why are the people going to the hospital 
older men, mostly. Um, my sister actually, too, is an ICU nurse at Valley, one of the mm-hmm. hospitals up here in Bergen County. She was in the COVID unit for about three months. So we're talking about it. And like the people that were initially presenting were all people that don't typically have contact with small children. Like they were older adults, older men. And it was very confusing for us because, say, the minute flu season hit, the people you see getting sick are young parents daycare workers, teachers. So we're like, where are all the patients running into our office? Like from what they're saying, it was circulating for such a long time in the New York metro area. We didn't even know it was here. Yeah. We didn't have testing. The criteria we had for it was people traveling from China. So I don't know if all these kids we were seeing in like January and February that had flu-like illnesses, that had negative flu tests, that actually did better than having the flu, were spreading it around and just really not being terribly ill. What we're seeing now that we have more access to testing as the outbreaks have hit Florida and Houston, kids can and do spread it and they can bring it home and spread it. They just don't quite spread it as effectively as people do over 65. Right. So the statistics that we've seen is people over 65 seem to spread it the most. From what we've seen, people over 10 to 64 also easily spread it. And kids under 10 can spread it. Okay. Interesting. How many known cases are there kids having COVID in the U.S.? Okay. The data coming out from the CDC is about 380,000. Kids under four is about 80,000. Kids between five and 17 is about another 300,000. Some of the circulating information coming out from AHP is about half a million. And then as far as fatalities, do you know what percentage that is? It's 103 fatalities total in the U.S. and in people under 18. Okay. So they seem to be doing well, but the caveat also is we don't know what we're going to see 10 years from now. And we are keeping a very close eye on any of our patients that might have had COVID to make sure they don't have cardiac abnormalities, especially. The unfortunate thing is a lot of viruses can attack all your body systems. Like um, one of the examples we've seen before is with enterovirus D68, which came out, I think, in 2012, where you did have like cardiac inflammation. There was some like nerve damage with that, too, that we always. But these are things we always look for. Most of these things. Everybody gets better and fine. But these are things like as a pediatrician, we know in the back of our head and that we've been monitoring. Even influenza A can have actually similar effects, even though the viruses act in a very dissimilar manner. We're in New Jersey. Our transmission rate in the community in Bergen County is minimal to low. So, and I always reassure the families that whatever choice they make for their families is actually the correct choice. Yeah, because there are pros and cons to everything that we choose in terms of childcare and school. So the real problem is that, you know, younger infants that can't wear masks, you have to rely on daycare workers and how clean and safe they're being. Most of the daycares I could talk about in New Jersey have not had outbreaks. I think there's one recorded outbreak in New Jersey among the daycare staff and not the children so far. That we know of. Like I said, everything shut down in March. So I don't know what was going on in February and the beginning of March. But the daycare workers weren't getting sick and the parents of these children were not getting sick at the time. 
other places in the country, there have definitely been people getting sick, even people getting very sick from having their children in daycare and coming and having them bring it home. Yeah, exactly. Is mask wearing really the best line of defense? Actually, that's not exactly true. There is some data that will be coming out soon about actually the real effects we're seeing of mask wearing. So how is COVID spread? We are pretty sure that the two ways you can get definitely commonly get COVID are through your eyes and inhaled. You're not commonly infected it by eating it or getting it on your skin or touching it. So washing your hands or using an appropriate hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol, um, those are things that can kill COVID on your hands so that you won't touch your eyes or pick your nose. Other ways that, that you spread COVID, you release it from your saliva and release it from your nasal secretions. Also, it's released from your stool. It's released from your stool in very high amount. So one of the things you also really have to remember is that in bathrooms, you can inhale stool. Oh my goodness. It's so gross. But these are one of the things I've been trying to educate people about because when you flush the toilet, you aerosolize stool. So I make sure that you have to remember to wear your mask in the bathroom. The good things that most daycares do is they are, the kids are diapered. So they're not really going into the bathroom. So that decreases their risk. However, if people are washing your hands and using like like Lysol or Clorox or all those products actually will kill it. Yeah. So that kind of thing is a little better because children do also shed COVID in their stool quite a bit. So, you know, mask wearing with the staff is incredibly important and social distancing the children that cannot wear masks. Because if they do stay pretty far apart, there's a much less risk of them getting sick. They think that there is less of a risk from like contact, touching contact surfaces and eating things. But you can also, like I said, put things up your nose, which we've all seen our children do, or put things in your eyes. Yes. So that's kind of really real risks are. So it's important to look at what your community transmission is and how close the staff are with monitoring themselves and their hygiene and social distancing of the clients. It's not so much the kids, but anyone really mask wearing in general, it doesn't perfectly protect you with like cloth masks. N95s are really good protection. Surgical masks are excellent protection. Um, multi-fabric, multi-layer cloth masks with that are a good fit are very good protection. Just not perfect. But what they actually do is they reduce the viral load that you are exposed to. So in reducing the viral load, it increases your body's ability to fight off the infection quickly. So there's, it's kind of behaving like a disease we know, like chicken pox, Mm -hmm. where how much chicken pox you're exposed to kind of correlates with how sick you get. So they think that mask wearing definitely protects you more from spreading it to someone else. But also if you're exposed, it really decreases the amount of virus that you are exposed to. Right, right. With kids, do you have a hack on how they can keep them on? Yes. So I usually tell parents of small children that you can only let them have screen time if they have their mask on. Ooh, that's a good one. 
Always incentivizing. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you say make sure that the masks fit them well, uh, make sure that they're comfortable and that they don't hurt them. And if you put their mask on and every time they take it off, you take away the tablet or the screen, they will actually leave their mask on. There are some caveats, like I said, especially with kids on the autistic spectrum, that is always kind of difficult, even though many children on the autistic spectrum can tolerate mask wearing. They have some that are size specific for children with adjustable ear strap that are soft. Those, my children actually really like those. And my niece and nephew, my niece and nephew are four and two. Mm -hmm. They actually really like them. And they do have headbands where you could sew a button on the headband and put the mask hooked to the headband. That's one of the healthcare worker hacks if it bothers your ears. They even do sell surgical masks or paper masks for children. My older daughter finds the surgical mask more comfortable. So sometimes she'll wear those. But it just, it's all about the fit and especially over the nasal bridge and by the ears. Yep. And when you get those things down and it's not constantly going in their eyes or falling down or hurting them and they're distracted, they, most children will kind of just leave them alone and not care. And the way I tell parents to think about it is that shoes are not comfortable and we get them to wear shoes when they go out too. So it's just kind of like wearing shoes is putting a mask on when you go outside. So some of the ones that I ordered for my own kids that they say are the most comfortable from Vistaprint, they have multiple sizes. Actually, the Gap has ones that they really like too. They're triple layer cotton with a filter pocket that are also in multiple sizes and shapes. Those are just two of the ones that I know of off the top of my head. I think that Crayola was making some and uh, those are just the some. But the biggest thing is make sure that they are comfortable on their face and that you have a tight seal around their nose. And that they're adjustable behind their ears. Right, exactly. Yeah, I love that. I know this is like a very polarizing question, but Mm -hmm. tell us your take on, let's start with the daycare age group, school or no school in an ideal world. In an ideal world, the advice I give to my parents is, if you cannot safely supervise your children at home or you cannot be home and you have no childcare other than grandma or great grandma, I think daycare is actually safer. Some of the kids, it's like really hard to work full time and properly supervise your young, young children. So we are seeing a lot of injuries. Like the kids are getting hurt because mom and dad have to work. They, you know, your bills to pay, you can't just stop feeding your family. Right. So if it is unsafe for you or you are unable to supervise your children, I think daycare is actually safer. My husband and I can't work at home. Yeah. So we are always exposed It's just not safe for us to have my children be watched by my parents. It's just not safe for them. Right, right. Yes. And then on the flip side, if there are parents Mm -hmm. who are working from home, in my case, I work from home, but I've tailored my schedule around Mm -hmm. theirs and I have, you know, childcare at home. What about that? I think some of the things I I give as resources to my parents is there is something called every state has something called a homeschool association. In New Jersey, especially, there are actually virtual preschool programs. So if your background is nothing in education, there is actually some formal help out there for you. So I was on a lot of calls with the New Jersey AAP. They've been a lifesaver through this whole thing. We were pretty much having weekly to biweekly meetings talking about, okay, what are we going to do? What will reduce risk? Because it is always preferential for children to be learning in a school environment if they can. 
Yeah. So like I said, the first thing starts with the transmission rate. Is it minimal to low or are we having an outbreak? So those are two different categories. If we're having mass infections and it's moderate to high transmission, then it makes sense to close down the schools because you want to kind of let everything die down. But if it's minimal to low transmission, we want to try and get the kids back to normal. So the things that they recommended doing are to socially distance the, the children, have them wear good quality masks, which we talked about. So no things with valves, no neck gaiters. The neck gaiters or the scarves are really just not very effective or helpful. It involves increasing hygiene and limiting movement of the kids through the school. Those are the big things. So you want to form what's called a pod, which we all kind of know about. So what pods do is they limit the exposure to people. So probability of getting infected if you're exposed to less people is much lower. Unfortunately, a lot of schools in New Jersey are a little are overcrowded. So that makes it a lot more difficult. Even though some school districts have been able to implement every recommendation that the AP put in place, they also had some recommendations to increase air circulation by either like opening a window or having increased ventilation. And they also put an emphasis on outdoor time, like outdoor dining and outdoor recess as much as possible. Um, my kids actually even had uh, classes outdoors last week. That's awesome. So, I love that. With schools checking temperatures. I think if it gives the schools a metric to help them kind of quantify things, it's pretty harmless. But um, I don't think that it is the end all and be all of COVID control. It might be helpful to see if a kid is getting sick, but I don't think it does a ton of a difference. Okay. Now, what are your thoughts on a vaccine and how helpful one's going to be? And when will it get here? (laughs) Okay. So my thoughts on a vaccine, I would absolutely love to have a safe and effective vaccine. I am not holding my breath about when we're going to get one. Mm-hmm. And before I recommend it, I'm going to personally review all of the research about it. I think that we are going to develop some type of population resistance. And yeah. I think that we are going to, even if it's not perfect, I think we are going, we are developing much better treatments. And one of the things that we see with mask wearing, honestly, is that it is mitigating the severity of the disease. So where people are like, oh, a mask doesn't do this or a mask doesn't do that. It isn't 100%. It's not perfect. We are really seeing that with um, social distancing and mask wearing, even if people are getting infected, they're not quite getting as sick. Another thing that I, I do recommend that people do is make sure that you are not vitamin D deficient. Vitamin D deficiency, uh, it actually causes you to have problems with your immune system because vitamin D is essential for your immune health and growth. Mm-hmm. So we're not sure how solid the vitamin D and COVID research is. I never would recommend mega doses, but most people of color and most people that are overweight and obese are vitamin D deficient. Okay. Um, so I definitely recommend that every take their daily recommended doses, which in kids under one is 400 units, kids under 10 is 600 units, and adults are between one to 2000 units. Okay. Okay. Tell us about some of the you know regulations that you have actually actively been working on pushing for. 
So since March, I've actually become more politically active because I think there's a need for us as pediatricians to speak for our patients. Yeah. So early on in like March and April, terrible things were happening at the hospital. People were so afraid of going to the hospital or getting medical care that little kids would come in with like burst appendixes. Babies would come in with like really high jaundice levels. It's things that like I was fortunate to be able to keep working and taking care of my patients, but other children, the parents were so afraid. So oh I gave it a call to one of our New Jersey State Assembly women. I'm like, this is really bad. We need help. Kids aren't coming in for their shots like they should. And then they're not getting routine medical care. So she actually talked to the governor and he yeah. actually made a statement about it on one of the news briefs. And the NJAP did a campaign, like a call your pediatrician campaign. So that we were able to kind of reach out and start helping people. Some of the other legislature I was involved in is um, New Jersey had a bill that was going to waive all the school physicals for the next year because they thought people wouldn't be able to see their doctors. Oh, my um, gosh. Oh, God. Yeah. So we worked with the New Jersey AAP. They were able to negotiate it just like for like a 90 day lapse. But this is so dangerous in my mind, because like I said, if they're the kids aren't going to school to get oversight, they're not getting all their nutrition, their mental health services and <laughs> abuse monitoring. And then right. they're not seeing us either. Then where are they? Things are falling um, through the cracks. The other thing yeah. too is the kids with the history of COVID, part of what we do in clearance for sports, it involves like risk for sudden cardiac death. And we're like these kids that had COVID oftentimes will need an echocardiogram or some type of cardi cardiac monitoring or rest period before they're allowed to play intensive sports. Right. So we were able to negotiate that, but it still does make me very nervous. And I've been personally working with our patients just to make sure that they're still coming in for their routine care. One thing that I love asking my guests is about a mama sense moment that they had. If you could just share an anecdote with us now. I actually switched my kids out of public school last year because my daughter was being really badly bullied. I had worked with like the school district for a year or two and like spent all this time and did this. And I'm like, my poor kid, I think is a bit depressed. I think she's being bullied. So I switched her to private school and like within four months, she was a different person. So she went up like four reading levels in like four months. She was like begging me to go back to school. So I guess that I kind of just like trusted my gut. And I was like, you know, I'm like, my kids need more. And yeah, we're just lucky to have choices. Yeah, exactly. And you just, you listen to that voice in your head that was like, something's not adding up and I'm going to yes. make this change and see how that goes. And yeah. That's, yeah. That's so we, we've gotten really, really lucky. Let's not forget our quote of the day. It is our quote that you live by. There is actually, um, it's by Reshma Sajani. It's brave, not perfect. So, Ooh. you know, I'm a big, big fan of hers after I saw her TED talk and I try to remember it. I have two daughters and things I've gone through myself. It's really so true what she talks about. And it's something I try to keep in mind as I go through my business as a small business owner and how I raise my daughters. Yes. And you know what? We've had Reshma on the show. And she was a uh, light. I mean, it was just really incredible to hear her story about how she built Girls Who Code and, and wrote her book, Brave Not Perfect, and her podcast. So, you know, those parents in general need to kind of change the narrative as how we raise our children. But when you have daughters, even more so, because you, you want them to just put themselves out there. It's now time for Mom Hall 
when we share products we love. Is there anything that you, you know, coming from your background as a pediatrician uh, would say saved you as a mom that you're like, I swear by this product? I love different gel. It's an over-the-counter retinoid. I use it on almost all of my kids 12 and up for like first line for acne. It's easy to use. It's really cheap. I love it. And it also is really great on aging skin. It kind of like gets rid of all your lines. Yes. So I think I joke sometimes that I could work for the company. (laughs) I love that. I love that. We all need a retinol. So yeah, it's actually not a retinol. It's a retinoid. It's actually used to be, it used to be prescription. And then it went over the counter. And one of the good things about it is most of the retinoids are like like a hundred or two hundred dollars prescription. This one's like fifteen dollars. Yeah, my mom haul is something that will come in very useful uh, for your kids. So it's a face mask extender, and this is essentially a band that goes across um, their head, so you can loop it on to the ear loops. And then it's just like more of like a headband. This has been great for my kids because they're so young and they're always running around. And so the ear loops of their face mask just, you know, fall off and slip off. So this extender keeps the mask in place. And it's something that I found on Amazon and it's under 10 bucks for a little set. So that'll be included in the show notes. I loved having you on the show and I respect what you and your husband are doing for us as frontline workers um, out there. We can't thank you enough for what you do. Oh, please. Like I said, we're here for you guys. And I always say that every time I'm like, you know, overwhelmed or sad or scared about my job, I think about how awesome all my patients are and how much I appreciate the kind of trust that we have. Because right. it's, it's a lot, you know, we realize like people invite us into their worst times and the best times in their life. Yes. And uh, it's pretty important to us. So. So thank you for choosing us as your doctors. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's total mom sense.